Hello everybody, welcome to Success Defined. I'm Ben McDonald. Today I'm able to sit down with Mac Lackey. Mac is a uh, ser successful serial entrepreneur. He's invested in startups. He's sat on uh, board of directors for some public companies. He's had multiple eight-figure exits, which is extremely impressive and we'll dive into that. And uh, he is a devoted husband and father. So we're going to talk a lot about uh, both the business side and the uh, the family and personal side and kind of how you blend them. So Mac, thanks for taking the time to sit down. Thanks for having me, excited about it. So I wanna start off with uh, you in college because you had really a tipping point, transformation type point. Can you go into that story a little bit sure. and then follow that up with really how that changed your outlook on going forward? Yeah, tipping point is a good way to put it. So um, you know, up, and t up until college, my life was very focused on soccer. It was kind of my passion. You know, I played, uh, I went to uh, school on soccer scholarship in college and I was actually kicked out of college. And so in that, um, in that process, it was a, about as extreme as you can be in terms of an eye opener. And I felt like, you know, my education is disappearing. My, I lost my scholarship and sort of life just, you know, was ripping away from me. And so it was a moment that, I really had to step back, think about what was important in life because up to that point it was kind of soccer and having fun. Right. And uh, like, suddenly, like most college students. Yeah, exactly. Maybe a little too extreme, but um, <laughs> so it really. And I was fortunate. My family, my parents, um, understood what a tough time I was going through. And so rather than saying, "All right, well, you screwed up. You're in the ditch." Yeah. Uh, you know, they they sort of took me back in. I got my kind of life re framed in my mind and then went back to school, played soccer. And uh, that really was probably the best thing that ever happened to me because it was such a you know, kind of punch in the face. Yep. Um, and then from that point on, you know, I've had a, I've had plenty of challenges like everyone, but I've had a, a very good path because I think that sort of reframed how I looked at life. Yeah, no, it's, that's interesting. And, and anytime you have to go through something like that and have some sort of wake up call, it's obviously going to make you reconsider some things, but it's just so interesting to see that change and how quickly it happened because right after graduating, you got exposed to startups. You were an employee there at a company, correct? Yeah, so my um, after graduating, I played one year professionally, um, so soccer kind of met its natural end for me. Yeah. And honestly, up until that point, I had really never thought about what I wanted to do. And I was given an opportunity to join a small startup. Um, I had a friend that I met playing soccer, which is kind of was my whole network back in yep. those days. <laughs> and um, and I joined in the marketing department. It was probably six or seven people at that point. And it was only because a startup and a friendship was probably the only legitimate way I was going to find an opportunity. I wasn't okay. qualified to do anything. Right, right, right. So you know, getting into this company, I literally within a week fell in love with startups and it was because every day was so different and the company was so small that that sort of notion of having to wear a lot of hats was my reality yep. right out of the gates and I was the low man on the totem pole so I didn't always have the coolest hats to wear because I was answering <laughs> phones and taking out trash and everything yep. but that sort of excitement and energy and diversity of task was just awesome. Yep. Um, so yeah that was that was kind of how I got started and kind of fell in love with startups. Was that the first exposure you had to entrepreneurship or was it within your family before? How did that work? It was really, um, I think, legitimately my first exposure. Okay. My father um, had worked, you know, he, I learned work ethic um, from him. He was a, a third shift engineer that worked, you know, a, a night shift and kind of worked his way up huh. into management uh, with a larger company. So I watched that progression as I was a child and I sat, I'm an only child, so I sat around the dinner table and we talked about business and we talked about my dad's day, but a lot of that was kind of interestingly about what he didn't like about corporate America <laughs> and bureaucracy. Okay, you know? so, so you I'm, just heard the negative of the other side. Exactly. Yep. And he, he, so he did you know, an awesome job of, of helping me you know, not feel like I had to choose that kind of path yep. and I saw some of his frustrations and he was very successful so it wasn't uh, but it was just you know you around the dinner table you talk about your boss and politics and things that are yep. going on yep. so that was kind of my the backdrop and then this company was my first exposure although 
I had another kind of you know pivotal moment where very early in that company, the president of the business had a uh, kind of an all hands meeting, which again, all hands was six people, six, but, yes. um, and it was to talk about strategy. And so he, he said, okay, everybody, let's go in my office. And you know, I'm excited to talk about strategy, kind of grab my notebook and he puts up his hand and says, why don't you stay and answer the phones? And it was such <laughs> a, like a, you know, ego blow oh, yeah. and hard hit. And I thought, you know, it was literally the first moment and I'd only been there like a week. So I had no, you know, reason to be in the strategy meeting. Yeah. But it was such a moment where I thought, you know, I'm going to struggle not being a contributor. And yeah. I mean, I, from that point on, I was like, I'm going to start my own company. It just became an obvious thing. So I only lasted there six months. So my work experience without being an entrepreneur was basically six months working for a startup. Right. So so you partially answered exactly where I was going to go, but you had a really short period of time until you started your first company. I did. And yeah. so that ego check was probably a big motivator for it. But yeah. to go from no exposure to entrepreneurship, starting a company, anything like that, how are you then confident and comfortable to then go after your own opportunity? You know, it's, it's interesting. People talk a lot about what sort of shapes an entrepreneur, and I really don't think there's any magical formula. Um, of course, I have the benefit of hindsight, and I can look back and see... Yeah what I did and what others that I've worked with have done over the years. But I think for me, it was some combination of that ego check, which was mm -hmm. interesting. I was not necessarily confident in, in business because I really didn't have any experience yet, but I was very <clears throat> confident in the concept of controlling my own destiny. Okay. Um, and so I really wanted to give it a shot and I believed in myself. I had a business partner who was very smart and talented and you know we were sort of in it together um, and I had a at that point um, a fiance who is now my wife right uh, who was also supportive and so I had a I had a support structure um, but a lot of it was I really just wanted to give it a shot I really believe that I needed to have my own opportunity and and so you know fortunately it worked and so it was a self-reinforcing process. Right. I know there are a lot of entrepreneurs that their first effort isn't successful, which I think is probably, um, I've had plenty of you know challenges and failures, so it's not to say everything I've done has worked, but that first one, I really hung it out there. I took a huge risk and the fact that it, it ended well reinforced that everything I loved about it and all the reasons I chose to do it, now mm -hmm. I was really excited about it. So, yep. Yep. And in your first company, uh, you started it with what a ten thousand dollar loan from a family member, right? Correct. Yes. Um, <laughs> then going forward in, in other opportunities, then you get into raising money and things like that. So, can you hit on that a little bit? Because I think that's a point where a lot of people looking to start companies they don't know where to go, and sure. you've got a lot of information on that. Yeah, I think it's um, it's again one of those situations where I, looking back over what's now twenty three years as an entrepreneur. I have a lot of opinions, um, but my own path was, as you just said, I got a $10,000 loan from a family member. Um, we used that to start this business, worked out of a one bedroom apartment. It was what now people would call a garage startup. I mean, right. it was a struggle. You know, my desk was my dining room table. Um, you know, it was really a humble, challenging uh, startup. And so that money was just enough to buy a computer and a few things that we needed to just get going. Yeah. But it was a struggle. And so after we sold that company, we had a great exit. Um, the company that purchased us went public and I looked at how they had built that business, which was through raising capital. Okay. And I thought, you know, for me, the idea of starting another company is for sure gonna happen, but I want the accelerant of, I don't wanna struggle. I, you know, I feel like, hey, I've done it now. I, I feel confident. I want to move quicker. And so raising capital for me at that point was all about sort of speed, speed to market. Yeah. And we did, you know, we raised a couple million dollars from what uh, people would call friends and family uh, relationships that I have. It's something that I, I talk a lot about um, when I'm advising young entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. It is far and away the most available and likely source of capital because these are the people that know you and trust you. Right. So friends and family and that company, you know, we raised a couple million dollars, but we built it and sold it in about 14 months. Yeah. So a little over a year, had a big, you know, eight figure exit, great return to investors. Um, 
So again, it was kind of a reinforcing process. Right. right. But um, over the years, and it's something, like I said, I talk a lot about today. As a matter of fact, I'm launching a course about how to help young entrepreneurs, or maybe not young in age, but inexperienced entrepreneurs yeah. Yeah. look at raising capital. And I've done you know, companies that have raised no capital. I've done companies that raised very little. I've raised you know, significant amounts, millions and millions for certain companies. So the context of what the business objective of the company really dictates, should you raise capital, what kind of capital, where does it come from? So I, I tend to help people try to narrow that down and then if they decide they really need to raise capital, I have a little bit of a playbook I think worked well for me that I try to kind of share with, yeah, with no, others. That's that's perfect. I think that's going to be a great tool that's valuable to people. So I'll make sure that we get all the information put it in the show notes okay. at the end. So That'd thanks. be great. So, so let's go back to uh, your story a little bit. You then, after those two first two companies in your mid-20s, um, you went on to do other things. Mm-hmm. But from the personal side, you could have rode the coattails of those two and kind of coasted for a while, right, and, and lived off of that. What gave you the desire to keep going versus taking a step back and relaxing? I think it's, it's for me, it's uh, personality. Um, to some degree, I'm, I'm a pretty driven person. Um, and so even though maybe mathematically I could have looked at it and said, gosh, I could, you know, sit on the beach, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, and, and, you know, the other thing is I think it's okay. I mean, the reality is, um, if you look at my life today, because I have quote matured in my worldview, I think, uh, I hope, uh, <laughs> and my priorities have shifted, you know, I have, have kids, uh, that I, I want to spend a lot of time with, but you know, in my early twenties, I did do some of the typical things, you know, I mean, I sold my first company and I was in, in line to get the supercar I always wanted, you okay. know? And so, so I, I checked some of the material boxes, right, the stereotypical things that come along. With right. That. And, and I, you know, I was, that was a big part of not what I cared about, but it was part of the, um, you know, for me to feel like the sacrifices, particularly the first company, because it was tough. I mean, when you look back, you're like, oh, that was great. Well, I mean, there were plenty of nights my co-founder and I sat at a coffee shop almost in tears thinking, can you make it another week? I mean, it was it was tough. And so when you have that kind of sacrifice, your wife is supporting that and you have an outcome, it's like, what are the rewards of the outcome? And the rewards were travel more, buy what you want, mm-hmm. you know, buy your wife some nice things. Um, yeah. But then, you know, I realized that uh, once you, everybody says it, and it's very true in my case, is once you sort of check those boxes, it's kind of like, all right, well, I still love cars, but now that's not a priority for me. You know, it's something different. And yep. so I learned that, maybe I was fortunate that I went through that very early in life. So my sort of perspective broadened out and I said, okay, what, what matters now? And it's for me to, um, even at that early point, work on something I was really passionate about, spend time on things that I get a lot of energy from. And I had a lot of choices and options. And so it became easier for me to say, it's not about the money, it's about passion, it's about what works for my family. Right. So framework yeah. change. No, it's really interesting. And obviously being called success defined, we dig into those things, but it seems like you learned at an early age that the stereotypical success of what people chase after wasn't giving you the satisfaction that you were really looking for. It was working on projects you were passionate about, continuing to grow yourself as a person, things like that. Yeah, absolutely. And and, and the other thing I would say, and and I hope that that your uh, audience can appreciate this, is that if you look at my 23 years as an entrepreneur, even though I had some early success, there were moments where if you looked at the reality, if you peered through my life and looked at my bank account, right. you would be like, wow, he has got no money sitting there. Like, how's he <laughs> living like this? And, and I basically, you know, for many years, I mean, we sold some companies, had some liquidity, and then I didn't have income for a long time because I was working on projects that didn't pay me. Yep. And so I was just taking that, what you would maybe call a nest egg and just burning it down. Yeah. But I never changed the priority. So like when we had didn't have the money to afford to keep our kids in private school, that was a priority. When we didn't have money to take trips to Europe so that they could be exposed to things I was never exposed yeah. to, it was a priority. So you, you'd look at my bank account, if you were a rational person or a financial advisor, you'd <laughs> go like, you have no business getting on a plane and going to Europe right now. Right. You need to make some money. So 
that to me is really a big part of um, why you choose to be an entrepreneur is you control those things. And, and I don't care what the optics are. I don't care what anybody thinks really other than my family and my close friends. And so I say that just to say not only do you know, does the definition of success mean something different to me? The reason I go into any of that details because I think a lot of times people are like, well, that's easy for him to say. He's got, you know, he's made his money. Right. Well, there are plenty of points well after that that if you would have looked at me, you would have thought he's actually going to go bankrupt before he's going to have any more success. And so I committed to that framework even when it wasn't logical. Mm-hmm. So it's been important to me all those through, throughout the ups and downs. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So let's take a look at after those first two companies. Mm-hmm. What are lessons that one or two lessons that you were able to take from those experiences that led to more future successes? I think I think probably one of the biggest lessons that I learned early is that you know the people matter more than anything. So who you hire, who you work with, who your investors are, that that becomes a almost a prerequisite to the size of outcome or the type of success you have. If you work with amazing people, the chances of having amazing outcomes go up exponentially. Yeah. If you work with investors who understand how you think in your life, um, given again, my priorities around my family, for example, if I had a group of investors that would not allow me to spend time with my family, there'd be this automatic disconnect. Yeah. So in order for me to live my priorities, I had to really think carefully about who I spend time with, what the expectations are. So that that sort of people dynamic has been one of the most important factors. Yep. And it's allowed me to be, if you look back at the companies I've had, I've had technical companies, I'm not a technical person. I've had companies, I've run um, funds, I'm not a financial person. You right. know, I mean, I, I consider myself, if I have skills, there aren't many of them, but, but you know, strategy and a few things, sales maybe. Um, so I've surrounded myself with people that have those great skills. And then the other one that I think a lot about uh, still to this day is kind of how you get leverage on your business model. And selfishly, I do that because I don't want to work 24-7. I don't want to have everything so dependent on me that if I don't check email at 2 in the morning or on a Friday, um, the business is going to fall apart. So in order to create a business model that allows that, I have to have a lot of leverage, meaning I have great alignment with my team, I have third parties that know what our processes are, I have someone that helps us scale, and that leverage becomes how you can live this life, yep. right? And so those are those are things I I learned and I look back at what worked, what didn't, what felt great, where, to, where, to, where was I challenged, and those are some of the, at least two of the quick things I'd say bubbled up for me. Okay. Yeah, perfect. So I want to go back to the first of those two that you talked about, mm-hmm. the people. Okay. Right? Um, what are what's your take on uh, partners starting a company, mm-hmm. partners versus starting something on your own and just getting people underneath you? That's a important question, only because my thinking on that has evolved and changed dramatically. Okay. Um, I, for most of my life and career, have had business partners. Yep. Uh, my first company, I had. Um, several partners. Um, I have had a long time co-founder of several of my companies that was a 50-50 partner. Um, And the reason I say that is because I was very lucky and fortunate that in particular my long time co-founder is someone that I've had a great relationship with. It's very there's a lot of synergy, we have different perspectives, we have different backgrounds, but there's a deep level of trust and mutual respect, and we complement one another. But uh, that is unfortunately the exception. And so uh, if you would have asked me a couple years ago, I would have been like, co-founders are great, partners are awesome, but I have had more challenges with partners than I've had success with partners. I have had a great partner. Okay. But I've had most of my businesses, even if they weren't bad outcomes, even if they weren't, you know, they weren't like fist fights in the hallway kind of things. But the dynamics of a partnership are very, very similar to a marriage, which, you know, you can just look at the statistics. You know, I'm fortunate. I have a great wife. I've had a few, you know, really good business partners. I've had some nightmares. And um, I think, you know, my advice to people is you, you have a partner if it is 
required if it is uh, the right thing in your business model, but if it's not required, there are other ways to get there, which is you hire for that skill set. But like you said, surrounding yourself with 100%. people that complement your skills Absolutely. with what they're strongest at is something you may not be strongest at. Exactly. And if you hire that person, if you have a true partner in terms of alignment, meaning like I consider you my business partner, we're in this together, but I own 100% of the company, like that's a different business. you know. Right. And so I'm a big believer in, you know, to the extent you can, you know, if you if it's your business, it's your idea. You know, you are the control partner. Okay. If you bring someone on, you hire them. Maybe they have a little bit of equity, but it has to be earned. So um, that's evolved and changed over okay. time. Okay. Yeah. No, that uh, that's really interesting. So my background was my father, grandfather were both entrepreneurs their whole life, and I saw my father running his own company, mm-hmm. and I saw my father with a partner, and the same exact things that you were saying. If you if there's not a lot of synergy there, then the entire thing can blow up and it becomes a failure for everybody. It's tough. I mean, I I, I think it's probably more again statistically. I've never looked at the statistics, but it's probably over the long haul. Partnerships are probably more challenged mm-hmm. um, than you know hiring hiring that expert that you know yeah. pay them a lot of money. I've had plenty of companies where. I'm the lowest paid in person. You know, I own the company, but yeah. I pay someone with expertise that's a lot of money. You value the people who are working for you, also. Right, they bring that's... something really powerful and unique to the table, and they're yeah. worth it. But if it doesn't work out, it's not like a divorce. It is yeah. a thank you for your effort, and right. you're going to go off and be successful. But you know, it doesn't tear my business apart. Yep. So yeah. that's that's helpful. Yeah, no, that's perfect. So uh, I had used the word tipping point earlier, and, and you had touched on um, from the business side how there's a lot of failure, especially with the first business people start. Mm-hmm. So what are one of those or two most common mistakes that uh, that people make starting companies to where they don't make it the five or 10 years and turn into an actual company? Right. Yeah, that's an interesting question. You know, I think um, if you look over a body of startups, um, the biggest reason startups aren't successful unfortunately is that they weren't really good ideas or products or businesses to begin with and therefore should not have ever been a startup. And the good news is, especially these days, there are ways to um, test your ideas, to get real world feedback, to do a minimally viable product, to just get the absolute bare minimum out, to get customers on board, get feedback so that you don't have to raise a million dollars to see if it's a good idea. So I think um, you know the first thing is test, test, test. Make sure you have an idea that's worth funding, worth starting, worth leaving your day job or whatever the risk is. Um, then you know I think the other reality is it's easy to fall in love with an idea, and because you get it and you understand it and you believe in it and you would buy it, to assume that the market is right. going to feel the same way. Right. Similar to the first point I made, but that one is a little bit more about the messaging and the marketing layer, and it's tough in the market right now to stand out. So you may have a better mousetrap, but good luck getting on Facebook and trying to tell the world about it, because everyone's on Facebook trying to tell the world about it. So I like to sort of think about if I have something I'm really excited about or I'm working with a young entrepreneur that has a great idea, again, I'll go to that where is the leverage? Where is the distribution? So if you've got, let's say, this microphone that's a better microphone, instead of you trying to build a company and a brand and market that microphone to the world, who's already selling microphones to millions of people? It's a lot easier to sell that microphone to them who already have the customers or get their distribution. Than to re-educate all the customers that are already out there. Exactly. And so another one of the filters I use a lot for my own kind of investments or companies or ideas that I'm working on is exactly that framework is I don't want to have a sales challenge. I don't want to have to educate the market on why this is something they should do. Yeah. I want to sell into existing demand. And, and in my course, I talk about sell what people want to buy and sell to people who want to buy. Right. Definitely true with investors. I mean, if you try to convince an investor to back your idea, but they're not an existing angel investor, they don't understand your industry, you're educating them on your company, you, your idea, the merits of being an angel investor versus the stock market, that's a tough sell versus going to an existing angel investor who already loves early stage companies, 
who already understands the risk and all you're trying to do is educate them on the unique thing you're doing, that's somebody that wants to buy. Yep. So I think a lot about that and I think that's a mistake a lot of you know younger, earlier stage entrepreneurs make. Okay. So I think you're exactly right with one of the things you, well, with everything, but one that I want to focus on is uh, there's a lot of noise in the market right now. We've had a really good, healthy economy for nine years now. Right. Um, and you and I have hit on this a little bit before. Is there a bubble in entrepreneurship where everyone is seeing people go out and just start companies and think that they can go do it also? Um, I think... I actually don't think there is a bubble. I think there is a fundamental shift. You know, I think um, when I was first an entrepreneur, and you know, we're sitting here in Charlotte, North Carolina, which is historically a maybe a little more conservative a banking town, and I used to go to events with my you know kids at their school or something, and I would sit around and people would introduce themselves and say, "What do you do?" And it was you know, I'm being a little stereotypical, but it was kind of you know banker, lawyer, banker, doctor, entrepreneur. And when I would say entrepreneur, I would say, I've got a small startup. They would say, oh, you know, it's like they felt sorry for me. Like, oh, right. you couldn't get a real job. Right. <laughs> and so that's changed, right? And so now it's almost cool to be an entrepreneur in some ways. So what that leads to is, again, these, I want to start a company. I may not have a great idea. I may not be well equipped to do it. And, and therefore, there are going to be a lot of people that start companies that don't work. So that is part of maybe the bubble issue. Like, are they all going to work? No. But and, I think... And is that because it's people going out that really should be number two, number five, number 10 in companies, and instead they're going out and they're trying to be number one? Exactly. That's, that's exactly right. So the fundamental shift that I believe in is the shift away from big, giant, corporate right. behemoths that hire tens of thousands of people... Um, those will still exist, but I think the reality is the view of risk has changed. So I don't feel safe and secure working at a big company because they can fire my whole division tomorrow. Yeah. I feel safe and secure controlling my destiny, knowing if I work hard, I can make money. Um, so that shift to smaller business, more nimble, agile things, that's, that's fundamental. That's going to happen. But should everyone be an entrepreneur or a founder or a CEO? I don't think so. I think there are a lot of people that are very much... Uh, capable of adding a ton of value and making a ton of money and living a great life as an entrepreneur, but maybe they're the CFO and the CEO is someone different, or maybe they're you the know marketing this, director or something like that. Right, way. and they get in early, they get equity, they have upside. It's it's all of the benefits of you know being in a startup, which I believe in very deeply. But not everyone should be yeah. out raising money and flying the I'm the CEO flag. Yeah. That's not that's not for everybody. Yep, perfect. So, uh, so I want to go back to that, that tipping point comment um, because it leads into what we were just talking about. Um, but now I want to look at companies instead of you as an individual. Okay. Let's assume that these companies that we're talking about, they're not the ones with the bad ideas where they really shouldn't be successful. Right. What's the tipping point to get people from a startup to a company? And what's the, what's the difference in your mind between those two? Yeah, the, there are a couple different points of view on that. I mean, my personal opinion is it's not necessarily about profitability. I do think, you know, I've had, again, companies all over the board. I've had companies that I have built, sold, and had a great outcome that never made a dollar in profit. Uh, I have had other companies that were profitable from day one, and that was an important factor because of the sector that we were in or the, the structure of the business. So I don't personally look at profitability, but I do look at you know, sort of traction, sustainability um, as one of those key indicators. Like it's an idea until you have customers that will pay for it or investors that will back it with enough sort of trajectory that, hey, we've got time to really prove this out. Okay. Um, so that's that's maybe an early indication of it's, it's working. Um, but ultimately, I think it is that sustainable factor that takes you from a pure idea and an early stage startup to a business, which is, you know, you lose one customer, you don't go out of business. Okay. You know, your server crashes, you don't go out of business. A key employee leaves, you don't go out of business. And, uh, and you probably don't have those conversations where you and your partner are at the coffee shop saying, can we make it another week? Because hopefully you've, you're you've not got that, this, you've yeah. got that build out if you're an actual business. Exactly. And maybe you have that conversation in the framework of hitting the next level or taking a big risk, which I'm a, I'm a big believer in, you know, don't, don't sit on cruise control or sit in idle. If you see a big opportunity, there's another gut check. That's like, Hey, we're safe and secure now. 
if we hire these five people, we launch a new product, we pivot to something new, there's this big reward, but there's a ton of risk. I'm okay with that. Yep. Um, but if you want to have a true sustainable business, yeah, you shouldn't be having those conversations like, are we going to make payroll this weekend? Right. Uh, that should be sort of in the rearview mirror. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, that, that makes a lot of sense. So with you working with entrepreneurs, uh, what are, are some of those most common mistakes to where they can't get from the startup to the company? The stereotypical entrepreneur, um, and this is again stereotype. Uh, right, the, nothing the, that we're talking about is gonna be universal for everybody. Yeah. yeah, stereotypical entrepreneur has a, has a challenge letting go. Um, they have a tendency to want to do and touch everything. So, and that some of that comes from the type of person that tends to start a company. Some of it comes from when you're a one-man show and you are doing the finances and the marketing and selling and writing code. Right. Um, it's hard for you to bring someone else in and say, okay, I'm going to just now handle writing code. You do the finances because you're used to controlling it. But there's no real scale until you start letting go. And not only do you let go, you bring in people better than you. So if you're not great at finance, you bring in someone who's a CPA or has an experience as a controller. And it's a gut check as an entrepreneur because they're not going to do it the way you did it. And so that's the hard part, right? It's like, wait a minute, you're not doing it the way I did it. They should be doing it better. Right. That's why you're hiring. That's why you're hiring. But it's still, I watch it day in and day out where entrepreneurs are you're really struggling through how do I let go okay. of something that feels important. I need to, I need to have that. Yeah. And so that's a real common uh, mistake that I see people have. And then the other is assuming that what worked yesterday is going to continue to work. And so that's why, you know, over the years, even though it's a very old book, I've, I've continued to tell, you know, entrepreneurs read only the paranoid survive because it plays out again and again and again, that once you get to comfortable variables change and, and what worked no longer works. So I like to see entrepreneurs have some level of paranoia that, I need to always be learning, innovating, okay. evolving, changing. And I've watched it again. Once once an entrepreneur finally gets to settle, you can just see it in their bodies. They're like, oh, finally made it. And I'm like, no, you didn't make it yet. You know, it's actually never over. So right. Right. it's great to enjoy it. If you want to go out and do, you know, take a trip with your family, whatever you want. Of course you should enjoy it. That's why we're entrepreneurs. But don't assume that the formula you created five years ago is going to keep working because it yep. typically won't. And so that's a mistake I see as people starting to scale is they just get kind of comfortable and complacent and thinking that that can continue and it, it rarely does. Yeah. De delegation and evolution. Exactly that's, right. That's perfect. Yeah. Um, so then I want to get out of running a company for a second and going into exiting a company. Okay. Because, uh, so I, I had sold my first company. It was when I started as a sophomore in college. So awesome. you're talking about the, the door or the, uh, the dining room as mine was a dorm room. So yep. same type of experience, but, uh, a lot of people don't go through anything like that. Mm -hmm. So what's the motivation or what got you to consider selling your first company? My first one was really, um, it was really interesting because we never started the company to sell it. Yeah. We never had it in mind necessarily to sell it. We wanted a, a great business. And once we started to get to the point where we were profitable, we were starting to be able to pay ourselves a reasonable wage, um, is about the time all of a sudden our space kind of heated up and people came in. We had three companies kind of out of the blue want to buy the company. And, okay. and my partner and I are sort of looking at each other like, wow. Why do they want to buy it? You know, like, what are they seeing? And the space was just heating up. And so we ended up selling the company um, to what we thought was the strongest of the three. It wasn't even the best financial offer, but, okay. you know, we thought, well, we're joining someone else's company. So who's the yeah. strongest? Yeah. And, you know, ironically, you know, the series of things that happened, you know, we sold it to a company. I very quickly decided I wanted to start another one. It was a good financial outcome and that company went public. And so it was suddenly like the day after the IPO, I resigned. And so, but what that showed me was the financial benefits and the benefits for what I would call my team. You know, I was able to give them a set of opportunities that either, you know, you had someone who was, you know, technically a secretary that maybe just paid for their kids college because they were a participant in this company. Okay. Uh, that felt great. And I wanted to see that for them and for myself. Um, 
And I knew that they're not all entrepreneurs. They're not all going to go off and start companies. Some of them are going to be better off being a part of this great growing business. Yeah. I'm going to move on because that's what I want to do. Yeah. So I, I, I sort of felt that and those <laughs> motivations. But then, you know, again, just sort of candidly seeing the financial transaction and how that worked, I designed me, my next one thinking I'm going to sell this as soon as it makes sense, which okay. was 14 months right. later. Which is really fast. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Sign of the times. I mean, some of that was just the market dynamics um, mm-hmm. of the you know that space. But but yeah, I, I, I very much uh, discovered what an exit means as an entrepreneur because it was not our plan for that first company. But then it sort of opened my eyes to, wow, there's there's a lot of opportunities. So. Yeah. So when you're working with entrepreneurs, people starting companies, do you encourage them to try to build a company or try to build a company that they're going to be able to exit? And, and what's the difference between those philosophies? It, it really depends on the entrepreneur and their goal. You okay. know, I mean, there are great entrepreneurs that have a, it is their life dream and passion to build something. And if they imagine themselves in 10 years running that business and, you know, sitting in front of a thousand employees or whatever their multi-year vision is, I try to help them map to that. And so um, personally, most of what I have done has been faster cycle times. Like I want to build a company that theoretically can exit in three years. Um, But that's not for everybody. And yeah. so that has a lot of implications. So the, the biggest things I would say, and I talk a lot about this when I talk about raising capital, is the minute you take an investor's money, you're basically signing up for answering the question, how do they get a return? Yep. And so if you're raising money for a company, your exit or your liquidity event has to be part of the plan because at least most investors are going to say, I'm glad you're excited and passionate, but I want my money. And so. So a lot of the, the way you build a business, if you're planning on selling or even want to have the option is you need to know what do these buyers value so that you're building towards something they care about. If you build a business that no one values other than you, there is no buyer. That could be financial metrics. It could be um, intellectual property. It could be patents. It could be a team. There are lots of things that you can do to build value for a buyer, mm-hmm. but you don't want to do that blindly and you don't want to do that late in the process. You don't want to say, okay, I need to sell this company in the next year. I wonder what people are going to, yeah. how they're going to look at my business. Like, that should have happened years ago. Right. So there is a playbook to do that. Doesn't mean someone's going to buy your company, but I philosophically believe if you build a great company, with the mindset of I want it to be really valuable for a third party out there, whether it's a financial or strategic buyer, you end up with an amazing business. You can choose not to sell it. Right. You know, we have a company right now that's doing awesome. I think we could sell it tomorrow if we wanted, but we don't have to. Yeah. And that's that's kind of the I think the perfect place to be. So at least having both options in mind, leaving the opportunity available for because you don't know what you're gonna want to do five years from now, three exactly. years from now. Exactly. Yeah. And it's a it's a tough exercise for some entrepreneurs, but in the, the framework I always use personally, and I recommend people use is three years because in today's kind of times, going much further out, too many things change. So if you're thinking, what's my five and 10 year plan, like 10 years, you know, are we going to be driving anymore? I don't, I don't know. I mean, so um, I like to think about three years because it's just far enough out that you can really have a big vision. You can really think about crafting an amazing business but it's not so far out that you can't really see what's likely. Mm-hmm. And then once you get that three-year vision, you start backing into it. If I want to sell the company in three years for $100 million, what needs to happen in 24 months? What needs to happen in 12 months? What do I need to do in the next 90 days to have that 12-month plan? So it allows you to kind of you know design a business around it. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, that's perfect. So let's move into principles and philosophies uh, because I want to hit more on, on some of what your focuses are, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, for anybody that hasn't gone to Mac's website, maclackey.com, read some of those articles. And one of them that really stuck out was the uh, the life wealth mm-hmm. versus work-life balance. Right. So let's jump into that first. No, that's something I'm really passionate about. And I think it is um, a lot of people talk about work-life balance, and that is fine. It's a philosophy. It's an approach. Um, but what that says to me is that means that you segment. I have time that I work and I work maybe it's Monday through Friday and then I turn that off and then on the weekends I spend time with my family or I pursue my passion if it's rock climbing or whatever it is. 
Um, and for me, the other thing I don't like about that is what you know Tim Ferriss, who I've enjoyed reading his stuff over the years, talks about sort of delayed retirement or delayed gratification. It's like, you know, I'm going to work really hard for five years or 50 years so that I can travel when I'm 50, 60, 70. And I've sort of always believed in this philosophy of fusion or what I call life wealth, which is, you know, like we're sitting in my home office right now. You know, when I finish this, I'm taking my kids somewhere. You know, I'm going to be out in the backyard with the dogs. doesn't mean I don't work hard. It means I control when and why and how I work. I think I, I put in as many hours and always have as probably anybody. You know, Gary Vaynerchuk would say, you know, 80 hours a week, 100 hours a week. I may put that in, but if I want to go to my kids' play at 2 o'clock on a Tuesday, I'm going to do it. Maybe that means I work on a Sunday. So that idea of I'm always kind of in my family, in travel, in business, it's fused together and it all is is. Uh, in alignment is something that feels really good and healthy for me. And it's allowed me to do things that I think a lot of people sort of delay until they're 50, 60 years old. Right. You know, in the middle of running companies, I've, uh, you know, pulled my kids out of school and traveled to 15 countries and, you know, we moved abroad and I'm still running companies. And I was never willing to make the trade to say, if I do that, that means I can't grow a big business. That just means I have to be a lifestyle entrepreneur. Like I want to build big companies. I want to build stuff that matters and that I care about. I'm just not willing to <clears throat> sacrifice working and not seeing my kids because yeah. of that. Yep. Was there something that happened uh, or an experience that happened to where you started to develop that philosophy? You know, I was um, early in my career, uh, very early. So my first company was was probably uh, stereotypical for me as well, meaning, you know, we were working 24 seven. I didn't have kids yet. I had a fiance. We got married during that business. Um, she used to, uh, she's been really healthy for me over the years because I think I would have probably been a life or a workaholic, uh, because of the way I'm wired. She would literally call me sometimes and say, you know, you've been at the office for two days. I haven't seen you. And I fell asleep on the floor at the office. And she said like, come home and would hang up and, you know, and, uh, so of course, you know, I was like, oh my gosh, yeah. I mean, I've, I have been on like a two day bender, you know, right, of right. work. And, and so, um, that kind of happened up until the point where we literally sold a business in July of 2000. My first daughter was born in August of 2000. And I said to myself and my wife, I've worked so hard. I've done all this stuff. I don't want to miss anything. I don't want to miss anything, even though a one-year-old or a two-year-old or a 12, you know, whatever, they're not going to remember that you were there or not there, but I would remember. Yeah. And I didn't want to miss it, you know? And so I just sort of committed that I'm going to be there. I'm going to be at every event. I'm going to be at every, if she learns to walk or talk or crawl or throw a ball or whatever it is, I'm going to see it and I'm going to be there. And what's interesting about that, which is what's led to a lot of stuff that I've done ever since, and I think has really helped me and helped hopefully a lot of people that I've worked with and and been in business with is I was therefore forced to say, how do you do that? Yeah. How does one build a, you know, 10 million, 50 million, hundred million dollar company and still able to go to their dance recital yeah. and carve yeah, pumpkins and not, at school? Not miss those. Yeah. Like, how do you do that? So I literally had to reverse engineer my companies around that sort of flexibility. It's, it's literally what I work with people on now is, and that's why I call it life wealth is you can't do that unless you design your business that, if you have to be there, it won't work. Yeah. You have to, like, your culture has to be right. Your investors and your employees and your teammates all have to be aligned around how you want to work and how they want to work. They have to have a, a similar philosophy. If I'm not there to answer the phone and I'm maybe the top salesman and someone calls, my number two or number three or number seven person better be able to articulate the same message that I would articulate. And so it's, it's really a great way to reverse engineer a business and, yep. and, it, and, it, and it works. But, um, but that was really my motivation is I'm not willing to make that trade. Yeah. And, and I'm assuming with a lot of the companies you work with today, you're able to help them develop that business structure so they can get the same life wealth that you've been able to achieve. Absolutely. And I, and I, I'm really careful to say to people like everybody's priorities are different. I mean, it doesn't, you know, it may be that you have you don't have a family, or, or of course your family is probably your priority if you have one. But uh, but maybe you have other things that are important to you. Maybe it's it's your uh, you know your health, your workouts. You know you're going to be 
you're going to climb Kilimanjaro, you have this bucket list, whatever those things are, having a business that enables you to do them, that's important. But the other is, I just think it's a better way to build a business because things happen. It doesn't mean that you're climbing Kilimanjaro. What if you get sick? What if you're out for a week? Like, is your business going to run effectively? Um, What if your spouse needs you? You know, you just, for whatever reason, you know, you need to be in a different place or different thing. Life happens. People design their businesses around one person, one process, and suddenly it doesn't scale. Things break. Things, you know, just don't work. And so when you reverse engineer a business to be existing without you, like I have full confidence that as we sit here, anything I'm involved in is running pretty effectively. And whether I go into an office or not today does changes nothing. Right. And I didn't, I mean, there's some selfish benefit to that, but it's really more about designing a great business. Mm-hmm. It's not about, you know, so I don't have to work. I'm not trying to not work. I like to work, right. you know, I just like to do yeah. it on my terms and feel like if I can't go in or don't go in, the whole thing ain't gonna fall apart. Yep. So, so let's get down to the final few questions here, but I want to build off of what, what you just said um, with people being able to do some of the things that's important to them. So what are some of those things in your life? What's most important to you in your life right now? No, I, I think, you know, I, I would definitely say, you know, my family is and has been my priority. Um, you know, I, I have two daughters that I'm, you know, they're, they're awesome. They have their moments like everybody, but uh, I want to spend a lot of time with them. My oldest daughter is literally looking at colleges now. She's about to go off to school. She's got one more year at home. So I can look back and say, you know, did I make mistakes? Sure. But did I do everything I could to be there? And and I know in my heart I did, right? And so that's been a priority and I'm thankful that I can look back now and feel that. And Hopefully that hopefully it benefits them. It wasn't a burden that I've been around, but um, <laughs> but that's a big priority. And then you know I I have often looked at work as something I get to do, not something I have to do. Okay. Um, and again, it's not a I'm not talking about a financial thing. It's like I feel very fortunate that I get to work on things that I get a ton of energy out of. And to me, that is my intellectual stimulation, curiosity. You know, it's like I I need that to kind of get out of bed in the morning and be yeah. excited. And work is that thing for of me. Um, so yeah, I'd say my big passions in life, you know, family, building businesses that I'm really excited about, and working with people I love to work with. I get a ton of energy out of that. And probably the other one is just kind of travel and experiences. Okay. You know, which is something I really uh, value and and think is important. And um, you know, we've seen that as a family. And hopefully it benefits my daughters is in life, uh, but you know it's a it's a sacrifice. You know even if you can do it technically, travel's hard. So you have to commit to doing it. Yeah, you know yeah. it's expensive. It's hard. It's you know all that. Yeah, stuff. you don't just wake up one morning and say, okay, we're going to go take a two week trip to Europe. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, there are a lot of implications, right. and so so that's something that we're passionate about. We've committed to doing. Sometimes it's easier than others, um, but yeah, those are probably the big ones that stand out for me. Perfect. Okay, last two here, both revolving around success, and we've hit on some great things throughout with success anyways, but how do you define success in your life today? I think um, being able to look in the mirror and be proud of myself, um, which means to me, you know, being a good person, um, being a good father, being a good husband, doing the right things. Um, and have that at least lightly validated by people around me, you know, yeah. that my wife feels like I'm a good husband, right. not just me <laughs> looking in the mirror telling myself. Um, so I, I think that's an important measure, maybe the most important measure of success is like what kind of person do you become? Um, that's a, a big one. And then, you know, on the other piece, for me, it's, it's controlling um, time, you know, and so okay. I, I think the ultimate level of success isn't necessarily money. It's time and, and being able to say, you know, I choose to, you know, work, not work. I choose to play golf, not play golf. I don't play golf, so I think that's a waste of time. But if you like golf, you want to be able to do it. So being able to control time is, is to me, one of the ultimate benefits of what we choose to do as entrepreneurs, what we work hard for. And if you're successful, you actually pull it off. Right. No, that's great. So last one here, you and I are sitting here having a conversation three years from now. Yeah. 
what happened in that three-year period where you can look back and say that was a successful three years? Um, great question. Uh, for me, it is I am doing a lot of the stuff I'm doing today okay. in terms of how I'm living. I've taken some amazing trips. You know, my hopefully my family is healthy and happy and pursuing their own lives and dreams. My daughter's in college somewhere that she's really excited about and my younger daughter's getting ready to go to college somewhere she's excited about. My wife and I are, you know, happy in our lives. But from a business perspective, I would like to look back and say, you know, I have legitimately helped um, thousands, maybe tens of thousands of entrepreneurs. So, you know, trying to use lessons I've learned we talked a lot about things that I feel strongly about today. And a lot of those, honestly, I've been blessed and fortunate. I've had some great outcomes. I've had five exits and all that kind of stuff. I've also been punched in the face a lot. Right. I've, laid a, I've made a lot of mistakes. I've failed at things. I've had bad partnerships and bad business decisions. Those lessons learned are the ones that I want to be able to give back and say, you know what, rather than learn those lessons the hard way, let me help you avoid some of those. I mean, you can't avoid them all. Right. Business is tough. But I'm really hoping that in three years I can look back and say, wow, I created a platform with my website, with courses, with events I may do. So a lot of that's going to be free. I'm going to try to do as much as that, you know, low cost free. But I've really impacted, you know, tens of thousands yeah. of people that wanted to build businesses and do it in a way that's consistent with, again, what I call life wealth, that they're not like, you know, dying of heart attacks in their 40s because they worked yep. themselves to death. I don't yep. want that for anybody. Right. Yeah. No, perfect. That's a great place to end. So for the audience, where can they reach you? How, what, where should they go to, to get sure. more information from you? So, uh, well, thank you for that. Um, my site is maclackey.com, M-A-C-L-A-C-K-E-Y.com. Um, most of what I'm doing and about to do is, is going to sort of be based from that site. And then on all the sort of social networks, it's generally, you know, at Mac Lackey or if you Google Mac Lackey, um, that's probably the best place to find me is follow me on social. Definitely, if you sign up with my site, then you're going to stay updated on things I'm working on, events I'm doing, stuff I'm giving away. That's probably the best way is just go to my site, sign up as a friend of mine. Perfect. I love it. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks a lot. Best of luck. Thanks.